Thank you for your only begotten son who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And we pray that you keep our hearts constantly devoted to him as we often wander off from your ways. And we also pray this morning that you're pleased to exalt the authority of your word. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Scripture that you have given us so that we would know who you are, know ourselves, know the plan of salvation, know your will, know your ways. And we are so grateful to you for your holy word. And uh, you haven't left us to our whims and wishes to lead our lives Lord, we pray at this moment that you speak to our hearts, enlighten our minds, exalt your name and the authority of your word, and conform us to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, this Sunday we are so grateful to you for the Reformation, Protestant Reformation, more than 500 years ago, because of which we enjoy so much of freedom and blessings and we give you all glory, honor, and praise. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. Just think about this. On August 15th, when Indians celebrate what? The Independence Day. And someone who is an Indian comes to us and asks us, what's happening on August 15th? Why are you celebrating this day? What do you do? You would stare at him from head to toe, wondering from which planet this person has dropped into this India. <laughs> Isn't it? Because Independence Day is something all of us know. It is something all of us celebrate. But sadly, there is also a Christian Independence Day. This is a secular Independence Day, but there is a Christian Independence Day which traditionally is celebrated on October 31st because of what the Lord had done through the reformers, which began even much before 1517 and also later and during that time. And it's so sad to see that many Christians are unaware of the Protestant Reformation. And today we are going to listen, uh, not entirely, but to some of the most important factors which will help us to understand the beauty of the word of God that we should be enjoying as Protestant believers. And I think that Protestant Christians is not given by Protestant themselves. And because they protested against the traditions of the Roman Catholicism. And uh, in fact, many of you know that I was born and brought up in a Roman Catholic family. And I was, being, I was a Roman Catholic for many, many years Finally, I came out of it when I understood what salvation is all about by the grace of God in Christ alone through faith alone. Theologian William Cunningham, he says that the reformation of the 16th century was the greatest event or series of events that has occurred since the close of the canon of scripture. After the early church, one great event was the canon of the scripture. Canon of the scripture speaks about how the 66 books, 39 from the Old Testament, 27 from the New Testament, were recognized 
not manufactured, were recognized by the early church fathers to be canonized as God's inspired word of God. And other books were rejected. And he says that next to that, if there is a great event that happened in the history of the church that was Protestant Reformation during the 16th century. And these five solas have been born out of that Protestant Reformation. They didn't coin these terms much year, um, many years later. People recognized that these were the concepts that the reformers emphasized. And finally, these uh, Latin phrases have come. And the five Latin phrases are, the first is sola scriptura, and which means scripture alone. And the second, sola Christus, which is Christ alone. And the third is sola gratia, grace alone. And the fourth is sola fide, faith alone. And finally, sol soli deo gloria, which speaks about glory to God alone. And these are Latin phrases which have been greatly trumpeted during the Reformation period. But today we don't have time to look into all the solas, but uh, we will be looking, delving into particularly sola scriptura. And what is the meaning of sola scriptura? Scripture alone. Now what do we mean by sola scriptura? Now hear this carefully for us to understand what it means. It means actually four things. The first is that that the Holy Scripture alone is God's inspired word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired by God. Only the Holy Scripture is inspired by God. Not traditions, not culture, not human opinions and philosophies and whatever the people can come up with. Only the Holy Scripture is inspired. It's not only inspired, and because it is inspired, it is inherent. It is without flaws, errors. And also that, since it is inspired by God, the inherent Word of God, it is also at the same time the final authority for all that we believe and practice. The Holy Scripture is the final authority. For all the church believes and practices. Therefore, they trumpeted that the Holy Scripture is sufficient for us. Sufficient for our Christian living. There are a few factors that I would like to bring before you. What we can learn from uh, the Protestant Reformation and how we should be grateful to God for this Reformation that happened in the 16th century. The first and the foremost important thing the reformers were concerned about is this. You know what is that? That every Christian and believer must know their holy Bible and rightly interpret it. That was their great concern. That every believer, right from the scholar to the farmer in the field, that everyone should know the word of God. And everyone should interpret the Bible rightly by themselves, for themselves, so that they would grow in the knowledge of the Word of God. Why? Because this freedom was not available during the 16th century for the believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In fact, this is also supported by the word of God where we see in Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. It says here that, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Which literally means you should be overflowing with the word of God. Not just the theologians and the Bible scholars and the preachers and the teachers and the pastors. But this scripture was written to believers saying that all believers should be filled and be rich and be abundant in the word of God. As you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now this is a command of the scripture. This is the expectation of God that believers should be filled with the word of God. But during the Reformation, this was not the case. In fact, people were abstained from knowing the word of God. People were banned from having the Holy Bible and reading it and interpreting it and knowing it. For example, this is very heartbreaking and even stunning for us to listen that. In 1519, in 1519, six fathers... And a widow were burned in one fire by the Roman Catholic Church. Six fathers and one widow was burned in fire. What was their crime? Because they taught their children and servants the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments in English. Sounds very crazy, right, to us. They were burned, destroyed, ruined. Killed, executed. Why? Because they taught the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments in English to their children. Because they believed that the Bible should be read, interpreted, taught, sung only in Latin. Latin was the only translation that was available and they were against all kinds of translation. Even today we enjoy the congregational singing, right? We all sang together and uh, individual worship was being offered. But uh, congregational singing was banned by the Roman Catholic Church. Not all were supposed to sing in the church. Only professional choir of men were allowed to sing and that too in Latin. And I think that one of the uh, great reformers of uh, the 15th century was John Huss. And he was burned on stake. You know why? Because one of the things he fought for was congregational singing. Because of that, he was killed. William Tyndale was burned to death for translating the New Testament in English. Who did this? The church. It's not the, you know, the, the pagans or the heathens, but the Roman Catholic Church became the enemy of God. And they obstructed everything that was possible for people to read and understand. In fact, uh, Roman Catholic Church, uh, they said that the Bible cannot be properly understood apart from the official interpretation of Rome. So there is a magisterium, the council. They are the only ones who will tell you what to believe in the Bible. You're not supposed to read personally interpret personally, believe personally anything apart from the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, a synod of clergy 
in 1408 decreed, there is a council in 1408, they issued the decree that it is dangerous to translate the text of Holy Scripture from one language into another. It is an official crime to translate the Bible from one language into another. We decree and ordain that no one shall in future translate on his authority any text of Scripture into the English tongue or into any other tongue by way of book, booklet, or treatise. They were against, and Latin was most like, uh, mostly like, what is Sanskrit to us? How many of you know Sanskrit here? Gautam, you know Sanskrit? Really? <laughs> many of us don't know Sanskrit, right? Because, but that's the official language of uh, the Hinduism, right? And no one knows, even Hindus do not know. They utter some slokas during the marriage and official ceremonies, which no one understands. And Latin was like that in the 16th century. It was an official language and only the elite and the scholars and the rich people understood. But the common man had no idea what Latin was. They knew English, but the Bible was not available. They knew other languages like German and other languages, but it was not available for them. So the only Bible that was available for them was Latin Vulgate, which was translated by Jerome. So Martin Luther's aim was to bring the Bible into the common language of people so that they would read, understand, interpret, and live their Christian life according to the word of God and not be dependent on the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. So in the Reformation period, Martin Luther's greatest contribution, if you ask, out of all the feats that he accomplished, the greatest contribution of Martin Luther was the translation of the Bible in German language, in the common language of people, so that his vision was that even the farm boy and milkmaid would feel the words of scripture in the heart, since the common man had no Bible. So Martin Luther translated the Greek New Testament into German in 11 weeks. People can't even read the Bible. <laughs> but he translated in 11 weeks and published it in September 1522. And then he also established a committee of translators, and the Old Testament was also translated by 1534. And praise God that in his sovereign providence, he invented the printing press by Johannes Gutenberg, because of which the scripture was printed rapidly and circulated to many people, and many people came to awareness of what the Holy Scripture is all about. And at the same time, William Tyndale also translated the Bible and it was executed because of that. And you know what is the good news today? Because of this Protestant Reformation, because of this some bold men who took the decision to bring the Bible into common language, according to Wycliffe Global Alliance, Bible translation is currently happening in 3,200 and 83 languages in 167 countries today. But you know what is the sad thing also? It is only 50% still. In the world today, there are 7,394 languages. 
But praise God that we are at least half. And why did they do that? Why is this translation work happening? So that people would read the Holy Scripture in their own language. And what we should understand from the Roman Catholic uh, uh, fallacy and also the Protestant Reformation is that being ignorant of God's word causes spiritual havoc. And that's what happened. People lived in ignorance of salvation. People lived in ignorance of who God is. People lived in ignorance of who they themselves are. People lived in ignorance of what the church is. And they were blinded by the culture and the false teachings because of which they had no knowledge of the true God. But you know what is the greatest problem today? The greatest problem today is not that Bible is not available for Christians. The greatest problem today is not that many people can't read the Bible. The greatest problem today is that people don't have time and discipline to study the Word of God. And you know, even the pastors, I come across even so many pastors, people who are getting trained for ministry, had no good knowledge of the Word of God. Why? Because there is no discipline of study and commitment to grow in the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, this Holy Bible has come to us at the cost of many martyrs. People have shed their blood. People were burnt on stake. Why? So that they had brought the Bible into the common language. And today, we people neglect this. We put on the shelves and we don't read it diligently. We don't learn how to interpret it. We don't learn how to grow in that. And I'm telling you, dear brothers and sisters, if we really want to honor this reformation that God had begun in the 16th century, let us honor their work and their labor and sacrifice by devoting ourselves to read the Bible every day. If you are neglecting, shall we just take a moment and close our eyes and ask God, Lord, forgive me for neglecting your word. Think about what people have done for this Bible to come into our hands. And let's make a commitment today, a fresh commitment, brothers and sisters, because of God's love, because of the sacrifice of the Protestant reformers, and say today that, Lord, I want to devote myself to know your word. I don't want to neglect your word. In my suffering, in my temptations, in my busyness, I don't want to neglect it. And forgive us, O oh Lord, for neglecting your word. We are living in a world of full of knowledge, full of information, internet, sermons, YouTube, and hard copies, soft copies. But still so many are biblically illiterate because they don't have the interest, the time, and the discipline to study and grow in the word of God. Lord, forgive us of our sin of negligence of your word. And we thank you so much for these reformers who labored, sacrificed, shed their blood, gave up their lives to bring the Bible into our hands and help us to honor their sacrifice by studying your word diligently. Forgive us of our negligence. From today, O oh Lord, we want to take your word seriously, knowing your word, growing in your word, and living by your word. Have mercy on us, O oh Lord. Have mercy on us.
Have mercy on us. The second lesson that we learn from the Protestant reform, uh, reformers is this. And this is a very serious struggle, brothers and sisters. And many of us are not even aware that this can become a great enemy. And this was during the 16th century and, and uh, in the medieval period. And that is, and the lesson that we have to learn is this. Do not place tradition equal to or over the Holy Scripture. Do not place the tradition equal to or over the Holy Scripture. There is a phrase that uh, we find in the Holy Bible. The Lord Jesus said to rebuke the Pharisees. And you know what he said? He said in Mark chapter 7 verse 8, he said that you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. You neglect the word, the commandments of God, and hold to the traditions of men. What did they do? They put traditions on par with the Holy Scripture. And in practice, even supreme over the Holy Scripture. And here the Lord Jesus gave a strong rebuke saying that you people have sinned against God. You have broken the commandments of God in order to elevate traditions. Now all we need to understand is that we are all born in traditions. There is not a single person who is not born in traditions. We all grow in traditions. Traditions are important for us. But according to the word of God, what we need to understand is that we should never put traditions on par with scripture, over the scripture. If there is a, if there is a choice between breaking the commandments or breaking the tradition, we would rather break the tradition than the word of God. Because scripture alone is the final authority for our beliefs and practices. And in order to justify, Roman Catholics had come up with a lot of traditions, which there was no base of scripture. And in order to justify their traditions, and that they are also important for Christians to practice, they have come up with a decree. They have come up with a command or official legislation and this is what it says that the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive our certainty about all revealed truths from the holy scripture alone what it says is that church is the one to whom the interpretation of the scripture was given to teach interpret and educate christians and what it says is that all that we believe and practice is not derived by holy scripture alone it continues saying, both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Do you see that? What a blasphemy it was. Both traditions and scripture should be accepted and honored with equal devotion and reverence. And that is how, if you ask them the question, it's not there in the Bible, but it's a tradition. And the church is an authority to bring out traditions and impose on Christians and you need to be devoted to it and revere it and follow it. And if you disobey it, you're disobeying God himself. And that is what they had done in order to entrap people in their 
traditions. And one of the, there are many traditions you can read. There is, there is so much of information available on the net about the many, many traditions that we find in the Roman Catholic Church, which is not in line with the Word of God. And one such is the Catholic Mass. Now hear carefully that you need to understand about the Catholic Mass. Even today, it is still believed that the Catholic Mass believes that priests break the body of Christ and offer his atoning blood each time they administer the Lord's Supper. Which means, sacrifice of Christ was not once and for all. 2,000 years ago, a priest in the Roman Catholic Church continues to offer Christ as a sacrifice for our sins. So, the blood and the body, we say that the bread symbolizes the body of Christ and the uh, juice symbolizes the blood of Christ. For them, it is literal body. So the body that you are breaking is literally the body of Christ. The, the, the juice that you are offering or the wine is literally the blood of Christ. We are offering Christ as a sacrifice and priest is the mediator for that sacrifice. The sacrament thus becomes a means and not just a sign of salvation. That is one reason I, I, I still remember that during my growth as a Roman Catholic, uh, uh, Roman Catholic family, every day there was service, morning and evening. It's very interesting that. That's the only church that I've seen. Every day they have service in the morning and in the evening and the bell used to rang, tongue and people used to go hearing the bell because during that time there was no, uh, you know, many technology, uh, many digital advantages. And every day, every mass they have this Lord's Supper. They break bread, morning and evening, Sunday, morning, evening, every day. Sacrament is so important. And it is not just the mean, it's not just a sign of salvation, but means, which means if you don't participate in that, you lose your salvation. You have no salvation. So it's so important that you need to come and participate. And the priest acts as an intercessor in the place of Christ. And even penance is done before a priest. Uh, you, you might have seen some movies where the, the person commits a crime and he goes to the priest and he sits uh, and he confesses his sin to the priest saying that this is a crime that I have committed. And he says, the Lord forgives you. So he is the one who pronounces the forgiveness of sins. And uh, the priests are consider, considered to be in the spiritual estate and the believers are considered to be in the secular estate. So there is a demarcation between spiritual and secular. The vicars or, uh, or the fathers or uh, the priests and the bishops, they are the spiritual people. And the people who are in the marketplace and working and the farmers and the milkmaid and the drivers, they're all secular people and they were highly, highly exalted. Don't we see that tendency even today? Now, you need to understand that I don't think so that the Protestant church has completely come out of uh, this uh, Roman Catholic inclinations. We still find those marks even today in Protestant Christians. And what happened as a result of it? The Protestant reformers, particularly Martin Luther, fought for the priesthood of all believers. Because he believed that, and he showed the scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, because people were ignorant of this, they were blindly entrapped by these traditions. And they trumpeted the scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which is a very important scripture for 
Protestant Christians and many people are not aware of it. And what does it say? 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. It doesn't just say that you are priests. It says you are royal priests. A holy nation. A people for his own position. That you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the reformers believe that every Christian who is born again and is baptized is a priest of God. And they also argue that there is no special priesthood among the priests. It's not that the pastors or the bishops, they are the special priests among the priests. There is no hierarchy among the priesthood of God. All believers have equal priestly standing before God because of what Christ had done for us on the cross. So they fought for the priesthood of all believers. Now, in the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther believed in the priesthood of all believers, both in status and service. Now, this is a very important thing. A lot of Protestant churches today believe in the priesthood of all believers in status only, but not in service. Now, what do I mean by that? Martin Luther listed seven rights that belong to the priesthood of all believers. Seven rights. And they are, you can listen to this, teach, preach, and proclaim the word of God. Every believer has this priestly right to preach, teach, and proclaim the word of God to one another. That's exactly what we have seen in Colossians chapter 3 and 16. Let the word of God dwell in richly as you teach and admonish one another. It's not just the priest who will be able to proclaim. Every believer has the priestly right. Now, it doesn't mean that all believers should come to the pulpit and preach expositional sermon. What it means is that all believers in their ordinary, everyday life and in their have fellowship with one another, they can proclaim the word of God, encourage one another the word of God. How many believers do you think do that today? In fact, if someone teaches or preaches... Their question, when did you become a pastor? <laughs> Who gave you the right to preach and teach the word? But brothers and sisters, I'm telling you that if you want to grow in Christian living, you must exercise your priestly authority and right and encourage one another with the word of God. And that can only happen when you take time to know the word of God. You know why people don't teach and preach and encourage one another with the word of God? Because they cannot give what they do not have. They themselves don't know. They are not rooted in the word because of which they don't encourage one another with God's word. But if you know, you will exercise your priestly authority and privilege. And not only that, to preach and teach. The second is to baptize. It's not just the pastors alone. You see that I, I, in, in, in my more than 25 years of Christian living I've seen 99.99% of the Protestant churches, only pastors are supposed to have the right to baptize people. No other believer can baptize people. Where does it say in the Holy Scripture? But that is a priestly right given to the body of Christ. And even third, to preach and teach the word of God, to baptize. And the third is that, to administer the Lord's Supper. It is not just the officials who will be administering 
the Lord's Supper, but even other brothers can also do that. But in many churches, we see that even in the Protestant churches, only the pastor. In fact, I'm, I'm, we should be afraid that just as the priest was the mediator and intercessor representing Christ to people, I'm afraid this might have even given the projection in the Protestant churches where pastor alone is appointed to do that and none other do, is able to do that. That's the reason in Ecclesia Evangelical Fellowship you see that I don't break bread often because I want to break this tradition. As in the breaking of the bread, I want to break the tradition. <laughs> and we allow other brothers, non-pastors, brothers to come and lead. And even you know that I don't baptize people. Very few people are baptized in the history of EF in the planting of four churches. Maybe I, I don't even remember whether I have you know, baptized at least four people. I encourage other brothers to take the responsibility because I want to break this tradition and people should understand the priestly right and authority that they have. And not even that, to bind and loose sins, which is to announce the forgiveness of sins. In the Roman Catholic period, they, the, the believers should go or the people should go to the priest and confess their sins. And when he pronounces that your sins are forgiven, only then they get the assurance that my sins are forgiven. Or else they live in condemnation and guilt that their sins are not forgiven. But... We don't need any priest or any pastor to say that your sins are forgiven. The Bible says that and we can say that when one sins, we can boldly say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because the Bible declares it. So we can take the word of God and offer the comfort and assurance of forgiveness to people who sin against God and also to pray for others. This is one of the most important priestly right. In the Roman Catholic Church, the only the priest was supposed to pray for others. So if you need prayer, where do you go? You won't go to a believer and ask him, will he pray for me? No, you should go to the priest. And he is the mediator, he is the intercessor. And he prays for you and he pronounces his blessings and whatever needs you have and the Lord will answer. Don't you think that is still prevailing in India today? I don't know about the West, but in India, unless a pastor prays, no one believes their prayers are answered. And that's why in many churches today, if you go to many churches, after the service, there is a huge line. Huge line. Why? Pastors should pray. I remember once I went to a meeting, I was, I'm not used to such gatherings. I went to a meeting and I preached and I saw after the session, huge line. I thought, my goodness, I'm not going to go back home tonight. <laughs> so I said that, I'm not going to pray for you. I just pray for you all in one prayer, but not individually. Because I didn't want to encourage that. Any believer, now I was reading an article yesterday, uh, which was very enlightening, written by Timothy George, who authored the book, Theology of Reformers. He says that when people think about the priesthood of all believers, they only think about in an individualistic mindset, which means they have direct access to God. They have direct access to God. But what he argues is that when Protestant reformers fought for the priesthood of all believers, it is not just to have direct access to God with an individualistic mindset, but also a community sense that they are priests of one another, which means we pray for one another. We uphold one another in intercession. In fact, what is amazing is that Paul, being an apostle of Christ, requests churches to pray for him. 
Do you see that in Ephesians and Colossians? And even the author of Hebrews, pray for us. We act as intercessors and priests and pray for one another. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, if we are neglecting to pray for one another, we are neglecting the priestly privilege and right that God has given to us. So let us at this time also make that commitment that Leela is sending prayer requests. You know what is he calling upon? Come on, raise a priest. You have this grand responsibility to pray for one another. Exercise that priestly privilege. And also he said that the sixth one is to sacrifice. Maybe he meant about doing good works for others. And you don't need any authorization for that. And seven, to judge all doctrine and spirits. So these are the seven services, rights of priests in the body of Christ. To teach, to baptize, to administer the Lord's Supper, to announce forgiveness of sins, to pray for others, to sacrifice, and to judge all doctrine and spirits. That is the glorious state that God has given to us. But Martin Luther also pointed out one thing. You know what he said? Though all have these rights, one should be careful not to exercise these rights by himself. The church has to recognize and give you those privileges. Which is, if... Now, Cyril is not a pastor. So we tell him to preach. It's not that Cyril comes and says, I'm a priest here... And I want to preach the word of God and expositional sermon. And he, Martin Luther says that if you abuse these priestly rights, there will be confusion, chaos, and destruction of the body of Christ. And those people should be recognized by the church. And the church has to entrust them this responsibility about who should be baptizing, who should break the bread, who should be preaching if it is a sermon. But generally all are encouraged to encourage one another by the word of God. So I like and admire the wisdom of Luther that although all have the priestly rights, the church should bestow those rights on them to exercise so that there would be order and peace, not chaos and rebellion. Praise God for this wisdom of God. The third, the third lesson that we have to learn from Protestant reformers is this. And I think this is very important in our time, brothers and sisters. Very important because this is completely neglected today despite being Protestant Christians. And if there is anything that is upon we having the privilege of being called Protestant Christians, we should exercise this. You know what is that? The lesson that we learn from Protestant Reformation is that exercise discernment over all preaching and writing. Exercise discernment. Examine everything. You don't have to believe everything that comes out of the pulpit. You don't have to believe everything that carries a Christian author and a Christian book. Christians are called to examine. And we see that so many people are gullible in their hearing of the sermon, in their reading of the book, emotionally carried away just because he is a preacher and a pastor and that is a sermon and that is a Christian book. No. That is the blunder the Protestant, reformers, the Protestant reformers pointed out during the Reformation period because they did not examine. The reformers believed that the scripture alone is the final authority and not traditions and magisterium. 
and that Christians have responsibility to judge the truth of all teaching according to the standard of God's word. Do you understand, brothers and sisters? You have the right and authority to judge everything, whether it is, accordan- whether it is in accordance with God's word. And if you don't do that, and I'm telling you, there is a high chance for you to be deceived and become a victim of traditions and human teaching and not grow towards maturity. Let me show to you some scriptures which are in line with reformers' assertions. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. It says here that, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. The Jews in uh, uh, Beria were more smarter. In other words, they were smarter than those in Thessalonica. Why? You see two qualities. What are they? They received the word with all eagerness. They had this teachability. It's not that they were critical about everything that they were hearing. And we should be careful when we examine. We should not become critical, cynical, pessimistic about everything. We should have that earnestness to learn, humility and teachability to humble ourselves and listen to the word. But also at the same time, Bible says that examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Constantly they were examining. They were having that earnestness, teachability, humility, and at the same time discernment, examination of what they were hearing. And whom did they examine? Paul. (laughs) And the Bible says that, the Bible commends the believers here for examining Paul. Is there any preacher or a teacher or author greater than Paul today living that we don't have to examine? You need to examine me. You need to examine every person. I would love to have believers come here and say that, brother, you said that. You said that. What is the biblical basis for that? Wow. That's a sign of growth. That's a sign of discernment. That's a sign of maturity. Not like oxen nodding your head for everything that you hear and read. That is not a sign of maturity. Everything that you listen and hear, there are two questions that you need to pose if you want to learn anything from Protestant Reformation and grow towards spiritual maturity. The first question is that, in everything, is there a biblical concept or is there a biblical support? In command or in concept? I I remember some people coming and asking me, that uh, uh, how do you prove that uh, church membership is biblical? And I had to bring out the concept and show to them how church membership is biblical. But many people don't question. They think that that's biblical. But if you ask them, how do you prove? They don't have any answer. Do you prove how church membership is biblical? I'm sure many of you will struggle to give response to that. But you should know, brothers and sisters, what you believe and why you believe. Don't believe anything blindly. Christianity is not a mindless religion. It is a faith of reasoning, faith of understanding, faith of comprehension, and faith of defense and refutation. And we need to grow in the word of God and examine these things. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says that, but test everything. Do you hear this? Test Everything, hold fast to what is good. Don't believe anything blindly. 
Don't be gullible in hearing and following people and reading books or hearing what you see on YouTube. Test everything and see whether it is in accordance with the word of God. Even 1 John chapter 4 verse 1, you know what it says, brothers? Now hear this, this is a first century and I think we have advanced a lot since the time of the first century in this plightful situation. 1 John chapter 4 verse 1 says that, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Now he's not speaking about evil spirits and the spirit realm. When he says every spirit means every person who comes with the Bible in their hands. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. It is in the first century that many false prophets have gone out into the world. And today, imagine how many false teachers, pastors, churches, teachers are there today. And Bible doesn't hesitate to tell people, do not believe every person. Test every person. Test every book. Test every sermon. Test every YouTube uh, those videos and, and sermons and audio sermons, everything. And it's not that uh, people just quote the scripture to prove that they are having some biblical basis. The second question that we need to ask is that, are they interpreting the scripture rightly? That is one reason I say that Bible interpretation study is the mother of all studies in Christian life and education. But sadly, they are taught only in the seminaries, but not in the churches. Although at times that we offered courses, but I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, if you don't know how to interpret the Bible, how to rightly understand the meaning of the word, the context and everything, you will be easily deceived by anyone citing the scripture. In fact, how did the devil attempt to deceive Jesus? Did he quote Quran? Of course, Quran wasn't there at the time. <laughs> did he quote Vedas or something? No. What did he quote? Scripture. He quoted the scripture to deceive Jesus by distorting the meaning of the text. And if you and I are not smart and intelligent and wise in knowing and interpreting the word of God, imagine what kind of victims do we become in the way that we understand the Bible. And uh, Martin Luther, in Octo on October 31st, 1517, which is considered to be the Reformation Day, he nailed 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. You know what he did? All the 95 theses are questions and allegations about Roman Catholic teaching. Someone took the boldness to study the word, understand the word, raise questions of the traditions and culture which is whether it is according to the word of God. And one of the 95 theses, if you have patience, you can go through that. If you have no patience, at least read the word 95 theses and think that you know them. 32 of 95 theses, the 32 of 95 theses says that those who suppose that on account of the letters of indulgence they are sure of salvation will be eternally damned along with their teachers. There was this practice of indulgence. And what is indulgence? It is a certificate that you get. And you need to pay. During the 16th century, it was money. Before that, there was some sacrifice and good works. But there, were, uh, there was some advancement in the 16th century. You need to pay money to the priest. Okay? 
and that money was used actually to build a huge basilica and they will give you a certificate. And what is a certificate? That your sins and the sins of your forefathers who are suffering in hell have been forgiven or will be reduced and you will take that certificate. That is what is indulgence. It sounds crazy to us now, but in the 16th century, this was a huge business. Today, people sell oil and all those things, you know, to make a lot of business today. <laughs> but handkerchiefs and oils in India, it happens very common. But at the time, they were selling indulgences. And that is how they got the assurance. And he was questioning that anyone who believes that their salvation is secure because they bought indulgence, they and the one who gave them indulgence, both will go to hell, he said. <laughs> that is not how salvation is attained or received. In fact, he was so bold, amazingly, so many reformers were killed, but God in his sovereign providence has, has, had preserved Martin Luther. And he had faced so many crises because of his faith in the word of God. In 1521, 1521 is known as a historic interrogation of Luther, and, uh, which is called the Diet of Worms, which is the council. People have gathered, the church council has come together, big heads, scholars of the Roman Catholic Church, they came together to interrogate Luther and to challenge him to recant, to take back his claims. And you know what he said? When he was threatened that if he doesn't take back his claims, he will be facing vehement consequence. You know what he said? And these words are known and well famous. And he said that unless I am overcome with testimonies from Scripture or with evident reasons, for I believe neither the Pope nor the councils, since they have often erred and contradicted one another, I am overcome by the scripture text which I have adduced and my conscience is bound by God's word. He said that you prove me from the scripture that I am wrong in my belief and practice. I am willing right away to give it up. But if you don't give me the scripture and if you force me to recant saying God's anger is on you and God will kill you or you are disobeying without showing me reasoning from the scripture... He says that I'm not going to give up, for I'm bound to the word of God. I wish so many of us today, our consciences are bound to the word of God. And we question everything that is not in accordance with the word of God. Asking questions that, where can you prove from the Bible? And whether it is rightly interpreted. And we should be protesting against all things that are not according to the word of God. Martin Luther also said that all creeds, sayings of the fathers and conciliar, conciliar decisions must be judged and never sit in judgment, the sure, the surety of God's word. Now, if any one of the saintly fathers can show that his interpretation is based on scripture, and if scripture proves that this is the way it should be interpreted, then the interpretation is right. If this, not, if this is not the case, I must not believe in him. What he says is that if anyone claims something and if he shows that interpretation is reasonable, giving reasons for his interpretation, and if it is right, you believe in that. Or else, don't believe in that. You, have the, you should have the guts to say lovingly, gently, humbly, brother, I'm sorry I disagree with you because I don't find scriptural reasoning. I remember when I was a student, my, my teacher told that, it is not just, uh, you need to, for everything that you say, that you believe and don't believe, you need to give a reason for that. It's not that I don't believe. What is the reason? I don't know. 
I believe. What is the reason? I have no idea about it. I can't defend it. I can't explain that. If that is the case, you don't really know what you believe and refute also. And brothers and sisters, that takes time. That takes efforts. That takes devotion. That takes sacrifice. That takes commitment to know the word of God. And let me tell you honestly about my testimony that when I became a Christian, I had no idea of becoming a preacher. I had no desire of becoming a pastor. I had nothing in my heart about full-time ministry. In fact, when I became a Christian, I called my Bible college and asked, when, when, when is the mass tomorrow? And he said, Stephen, we don't have mass. Because I came from a Roman Catholic background, and the only thing that I knew was our Father in heaven, except that I didn't know anything of the Holy Bible. Because we used to say Holy Mary, Rosary, and all these things. So it was very common for us to use and utter that, uh, 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 our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And besides the Lord's Prayer, I had no idea. I was having zero knowledge of the Bible. And when I came to Christ, I asked, when is the Mass? And after the prayer, I used to put the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> that's, that's how illiterate I was. I had no desire of pastor, preacher, anything. But one thing that begat in my heart was, I want to know God's Word. I don't want to be ignorant of it. In, in months... Nowadays, there, are, there is digital copies, but when I was reading the Bible, when I became a Christian, every six months, the Bible was worn out. I used to buy another Bible. I used to devour like anything. And I read and read and read, and I reasoned, I reasoned, I questioned. I ate the brains of, uh, figuratively speaking, ate the brains of the professors and asked them questions, and I studied and studied and studied. And I'm surprised that today I'm a pastor. I'm surprised that today I'm a preacher, but that was not my intention at all. And that gave me the grace today to really know the word of God, know the will of God, teach people, encourage people, and examine everything, question people whether this is in accordance with the word of God. And this is what I have learned from the freedom that we have as Protestant believers. I want to conclude with what Luther said, and please remember this. He said that scripture alone is the true Lord and master of all writings and doctrine on earth. Scripture alone is the true Lord and master of all writings and sermons and doctrine on earth. You need to let scripture dictate, direct, question, discern, examine, follow, commit, everything. You need to see that the scripture has a say on that. If not... It has no authority. So brothers and sisters, let us read the word of God. Know the word of God. Not place any human opinion or tradition equal to or over the word of God. Examine everything. Practice discernment. And I am telling you that you are rightly using the freedom of the sacrifice of Protestant reformers who bought freedom for us to own the copy of the Bible, read for ourselves, interpret it, and live accordingly. Let us all stand together and pray at this time. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you this morning as we think about the Protestant Reformation. Thank you so much for Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, William Tyndale, John Wycliffe, and so many other reformers that we can't name. 
Thank you so much for the labor they took to study your word and the boldness they had to question the traditions and the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and fought for the supremacy of your word. We thank you for the freedom that we enjoy today because of your work through them, that we own the Bible. We have not only one Bible, we have several versions of the Bible today. We have Bible on our phone and laptop and hard copies, soft copies, what else we don't have. Lord, we thank you so much for all the knowledge that we have. And I think that this generation will be held greatly accountable for the knowledge you have given us. And also for neglecting the knowledge you've given us. Lord, give us your grace, O Heavenly Father, that you help us to read your word diligently, reverently, obediently. Know your will, know your ways. Encourage one another with your word and proclaim its glory among the nations. Lord, we thank you so much for your love for us. You loved us so much that you not only gave your only begotten son, you loved us so much that you gave us the Holy Scripture to educate us, instruct us in the ways that we have to walk with you. Thank you for the scripture that corrects us, teaches us, trains us, rebukes us, encourages us, comforts us. Thank you so much for your word, O Lord. Once again, we pray this morning that you help us not to neglect your word, but devote ourselves to devour your word so that we would live according to your word and glorify your name. Thank you so much once again for all the reformers, for this reformation uh, that we have heard and also that we enjoy the freedom. We praise you, O Lord, for your work through them. And today also, we still need the reformation, O Lord. It is not over. You raised Luther's and Calvin's even today from among this church so that we would uphold and proclaim the supremacy of Christ and his word. We ask you, O Lord, that you glorify your name and honor your word. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen.